11.55, almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. One more story before 12. Just to keep us warm. In five minutes, it'll be the 21st of April. 100 years ago, on the 21st of April, out on the waters around Spivey Point, a small clipper ship drew toward land. Suddenly, out of the night, the fog rolled in. For a moment, they could see nothing, not a foot ahead of them. And then they saw a light. My God, it was a fire burning on the shore, strong enough to penetrate the swirling mist. They steered a course toward the light, but it was a campfire like this one. The ship crashed against the rocks. The hull sheared in two. The mast snapped like a twig, and the wreckage sank men aboard. At the bottom of the sea lay the Elizabeth Dane with her crew, their lungs filled with salt water, their eyes open and staring into the darkness. And above, as suddenly as it had come, the fog lifted, receded back across the ocean and never came again. But it is told by the fishermen and their fathers and grandfathers that when the fog returns to Antonio Bay, the men at the bottom of the sea, out in the water by Spivey Point, will rise up and search for the campfire that led them to their dark and icy death. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing. Or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Happy birthday, Antonio Bay, and welcome to a special edition of the Film Effect Podcast as we're dedicating this one to the best John Carpenter film that isn't called Halloween. In case you're new to the crew, this is a weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it that full Film Effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is John Carpenter's The Fog. John Carpenter's The Fog. This is KAB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. 
And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> 100 years ago, between midnight and one, something unnatural came out of the fog. Now it has returned. One hundred years ago, between midnight and one, something evil came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Who's there? The fog. Antonio Bay has a curse on it. We're all cursed. There's no water got in here, but something awful cold, Ben. I think I'll go to Vancouver now. Where's the fog now? Well, it should be right outside my door now. Oh, there's something different about this fog. Dan, stay away from the door! Someone listen to me! Get inside and lock your doors. Close your windows. There's something in the fog. Stay away from the fog. Creator of Halloween, the ultimate experience in terror and suspense. John Carpenter's The Fog, starring Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, John Houseman, Janet Lee as Kathy Williams, and Hal Holbrook as Father Malone. The Fog. What you can't see won't hurt you. It will kill you. Between midnight and one, it will find you. Uh, so the fog tells the story of a strange glowing fog that sweeps over the small coastal town of Antonio Bay, bringing with it the vengeful ghosts of mariners who were killed in a shipwreck there 100 years before. Oh man, I'm so excited to talk about this one. Like I, you know, I, I, I've talked about this before time and time again. I am the biggest fan of this movie I, like I said if, it's, if it weren't for Halloween this would be the best film that Carpenter ever did it's got so much going for it uh, I, I love to watch this film around the holiday or, or when I say the holidays I mean Halloween time of course um, <laughs> not Christmas and of course April because April 21st that's you know Antonio Bay baby so uh, just even rewatching it again this morning in, in preparation for this episode, I just, uh, yeah, we're, yeah. Where, where are you at with this movie? I, I mean, I'm definitely not as high as you are on it. I mean, I like it. I've always enjoyed it, uh, but I wouldn't put it up there with Carpenter's uh, best for me. Like personally, I mean, I there's plenty of others like Halloween, uh, The Thing, They Live. I don't know, there's a bunch of others, but it's still a good, it's solid uh, ghost movie. I've always enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so, uh, but just not as high up as you. But yeah, it's still a great movie. Excellent. 
uh, just wanted to clarify with something. Uh, don't get me wrong. Halloween is the best John Carpenter movie. I, I'm not denying that one bit. I fucking love Halloween to death. Previous episode, check it out. But no, The Fog is my, obviously my second favorite. But if it weren't for Halloween, this would definitely be. That's what I'm getting at. But anyway, just want to not confuse anybody. That's all. Uh, yeah, let's just jump into it. First time viewing. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to, uh, for me, this was a nightmare theater viewing. This was definitely one that was on Channel Fifty Four Saturday at two o'clock. Growing up, I remember watching it at my grandparents' house, uh, pops' room, just first time, and the one scene that stood out was the uh the scene where they you know go after uh andy and the babysitter and uh that for some reason that just always got me because it's like man they got the babysitter that poor old woman <laughs> that just always like stuck with me is like the, the fact that they always that they, they killed the babysitter um and then i didn't watch it for a while afterward um it had been years and years and then 2002 20 years ago uh, MGM put out a special edition DVD and I remember picking that up because it came out right around the same time because 2002 they put out MGM went on on a roll they put out a special edition Fog special edition Return of the Living Dead special edition Last House on the Left like a bunch of movies came out in 2002 and then Anchor Bay was putting out Near Dark like it was a great time to be alive for a horror fan and you know this was given the true special edition treatment it just didn't have that label slapped on there for the sake of whatever like this actually had a, a bunch of stuff on there commentary um the, the behind the scenes the conversation with dean cundy uh no wait, that was for screen factory but no my point is it had a bunch of uh, features for its time and um ever since then uh, i just go back to this frequently and yeah, so I, I I just I keep wanting to like start talking about all the reasons why I fucking love this movie, and I stop and I'm like, yeah. So before I guess there's a, there's a time and place for that, Ed. Um, how about you, Corey? When was your first time? Mine's pretty similar to yours. Uh, it was definitely on, you know, broadcast TV, edited with uh, commercials. I don't remember if it was Nightmare Theater or what I necessarily saw it on. I don't have uh, great memories about the first time I saw it. I just remember watching it on TV. Like you said, the babysitter scene where the babysitter gets it uh, stood oh, yeah. out to me. Also, the ending stood out to me. Uh, the whole radio uh, thing directing people away from the fog. Yeah, I remembered all that, but I forgot a lot of the finer details um, until I... Re- more recently rewatched it, uh, you know, like whatever it was, 10 years ago or whatever, when I got it on Blu-ray or DVD for the first time. Uh, so I have right. vague memories. I mean, we very well could have watched it together for all I remember. I, I'm not 100% sure. It's not one of those that I had, um, like, super fond or um, vivid memories of. I remember liking it. I remember mm-hmm. thinking it was pretty cool. And then when I started getting into Carpenter more, like I said, probably about 15 years ago or so, it was kind of going through his filmography. I remember rewatching it and liking it then. 
I, for whatever reason, I remember when I was younger, I thought Jamie Lee Curtis was the um, the DJ on the radio. I don't know why. I just remember as a kid, I thought it was Jamie Lee Curtis because I remember she was in the movie. And then when I rewatched it when I was an adult, I was like, wait a minute, Jamie Lee Curtis isn't it? It's Adrian Barbeau. I was like, threw me off a little bit. I think uh, that's a common misconception, and there's a reason for that, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah, and then the other thing that threw me off that I kind of blended together from when I was a kid is, I don't know if you're familiar with Are You Afraid of the Dark at all. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon. So there was the episode, it's not exactly the same, but it was called Tale of the Water Demons. It was um, on Snick. Yeah, it was on Snick. It was like the edgier show for the kids back yeah. then. Yeah. It was a 930 uh, uh, program. Yeah. So I remember there was an episode, Tale of the Water Demons, and I kind of blended those together because I saw that when I was a kid. And it had mm-hmm. a somewhat similar concept of uh, like um, zombies or whatever coming out of the water to come get you. Obviously, it was a kid friendly version and it was different. Like it, it had to do if you were sleeping and near the water and stuff like that. But I kind of blended those two together. <laughs> so then at one point when I was um, about to rewatch it for the first time in a long time, I was like, it doesn't have something to do with you if you're sleeping or something. I realized I blended those two together completely. I was like, yeah, it has nothing fucking to do with the fog whatsoever. Right. But for whatever reason, I just blended those two together because they were similar enough. Uh, but yeah, just a couple anecdotes. But yeah, that was my first time viewing. Uh, you know, it's one of those I've rewatched a couple times. I have the Scream Factory uh, special edition, so I watched it uh, when Same. I got that. Whenever that came out, like a year or two ago, or it might be longer. I don't know. Oh, I don't a while longer than that. I was one of the first releases that Scream Factory put out. Oh really? Okay. Oh yeah. It must must have been a while then, because I mean, I know I remember I bought it when it first came out, so I guess I rewatched it. Long. It had been longer. Than I thought. Um, a lot longer than one year, fella. Yeah, so, but I had the Scream Factory. I watched it when I first got it, but yeah, doing this episode gave me a reason to revisit it. And yeah, it, it's a movie that holds up. I think if you have memories about it, it definitely still holds up. But yeah, that was my first time. You know, that opening to Are You Afraid of the Dark always got me. Every single time when I was a kid watching that. Like, I think it was like the part where like, the camera pans up into the attic and it turns. You see the clown sit, the clown doll sitting there, and it's like, ah, oh, man, some freaky yeah. shit. Then, like, the wind blowing with the little swings outside. I'm getting chills thinking about it right now. It's taking me back, yeah. man. Whew. It was definitely scarier than, like, half the episodes, probably. I it would was. say. And that, so- creepy, that creepy ass theme song. God. <laughs> make shows like that anymore that's a damn shame now, i know yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sounding like an old man right now but like it's the truth man they, they really don't and that's 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 so they they would never make a show today like are you afraid of the dark i mean they can try and bring it back as much as they want and you know they do but it's just you're never going to capture that same you know magic that the first run had you know 
Yeah, and it's a shame too, because I don't think there's a good way to own it on physical media. I, I mean, I think there's a few collections out, and I think in maybe mm-hmm. other regions there might be a collection. But I think as far as U.S., because I think I looked into it a while back, uh, there is no good way to get all the episodes. I was a little disappointed because that's one of those I wanted to revisit. But, you know, as far as I, unless I, it's something that's came out recently, as far as I know, there's no good way to own it. Man, I would love to go back and rewatch that show. I haven't seen it in so long. I can't even remember the last time I watched that show. But there are, like, a handful of episodes that stand out. And, like... Oh, yeah. You know, that show, looking back at it in hindsight, that was a really scary show. Wow. I, I never really thought about it in physical media. I'll have to check it. Uh, look, look into it. Check it out. So, all right. Well, uh, let's do where we at now. Story time. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit. But it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. I'm really reaching for this one. Let's talk about this goddamn fucking remake. (laughs) Oh, man. get it out of the way. Let's just get it out of the way, because, you know... 2005, rough time. They went out and did a remake. Fucking Sony, uh, Columbia, whatever. Uh, it's the last, it's a damn shame too because it was, it was the last project that Deborah Hill worked on because she was a producer on it. I think John was executive producer, but she was actually a, if I'm not mistaken, she was, you know, an actual, you know, producer on it. I'm looking <laughs> it up right now. Yeah, Carpenter was definitely just cashing his check right there. No, all th- no, both of them were. It was uh, Carpenter, David Foster, and Deborah Hill. But it was the last thing that she worked on because she passed away before it came out, um, March of uh, 2005. And uh, yeah, it's a movie that I actually went back. I want to say around the holidays. And when I say the holidays this time, I actually mean the holidays. Uh, I, it was on Stars, and I watched it, the, the remake, for the first time since the theater. And God damn it, I think it was worse than I remember it being. Like, no joke, it's it's that bad. Like, when oh, people ask, what's the worst remake you've ever seen, without even thinking, I'm just like, The Fog. Fucking The Fog. It is so bad, like... We, let's talk about it now because we're never going to cover the goddamn thing that's for sure <laughs> I don't think I don't think I can watch this film a third a third time like no uh, but yeah, yeah it's just I hated the twist like that was the one thing that like really like, made me angry is how they actually made like Elizabeth the character Jamie Lee Curtis in the original but in this one she was more of like the main character um, Maggie Grace played her of course and uh yeah, she was actually one of the ghosts, and that was the whole. Yeah, it's it's so goddamn bad. Yeah, it made my brain hurt when I saw that. I I remember watching it when it first came out and not liking it, and then I I did the same thing. I revisited it. I don't remember when. Maybe like maybe it was when I rewatched the Scream Factory 
original Fog, the good one. Um, I re- I revisited. I was like, how bad can it be? I remember hating it. I was like, how bad can I be? And then I I was like, oh no, it it was as bad as I can remember. Oh yeah. Like Tom Welling. I mean, I like Smallville at least the first few seasons. Man, was he terrible? The twist was terrible. Everything. That was at the height. Selma Blair as Stevie Wayne. Sorry. Eh. I like Selma Blair, but she was just not not a good Stevie Wayne. No. No, not in that role. And then fucking that that, that character that uh, D. Ray Davis played. Oh, God. That scene with him and that guy on the boat with the fucking two girls that are just, woo! The fucking woo girls. And then, oh my God, it's 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 clearly supposed to be the fisherman scene from this film that we're about to talk about, but it just they missed the note on every single key. Yeah, it's just it, bad. It's it's so bad. It's from like the worst era of like remakes and stuff. You know, nowadays. Yeah, O five was not a good time for horror. It really wasn't. And I I want to say either me and you or me and some. I've had this conversation recently about that era, and how there just wasn't enough like good stuff. I mean, now today I appreciate Wolf Creek more than I did when I first saw it. But other than that, like nothing really stands out. High tension, but. That that's more of like a two thousand three, two thousand four film, depending on which you know country you're talking about. Um, because it didn't come out here in the states until two thousand five. Right. Anyway, it was just horror was just in a weird time in the mid the mid aughts. Who can forget Wes Craven's Cursed? Yeah, it was just in a bad spot because you had the stuff, the meta humor gone awry. Like from the hangover from Scream, which, you know, some of that stuff was okay at the beginning, but by this point, it was just too long in the tooth. Then you had the remake bullshit where they're remaking all the old horror movies uh, right. and remaking them badly, like just not giving a shit at all and just using the name and a couple plot points. And that was pretty much it. And some of the character names and boom, that's your remake, your shitty fucking early 2000 remake. It just, yeah, it wasn't a good time at all um, for the genre. I know, I know, a lot of people say like the early '90s was really bad for horror, but I, I think the early 2000s was far worse. Like when you go back and think about it, at least for me, there wasn't like you said a whole lot of movies that came out of that era that I'm like, oh yeah, this was a this was a classic or this was fantastic. Yeah, not too many when you think about it, at least for me. Actually, I better be careful and not talk too much shit about Curse because, uh, I don't know, man. We may or may not be covering it, uh, for this year's Halloween Horathon. Oh, come on. There's gotta be some better fucking movies that we can cover than that. Well, okay, well, here's the thing. I might as well just talk about it now. Um, I'll, I'll reveal one thing about this year's upcoming Horathon. It kind of like, uh, since we're halfway to Halloween, I'll let one little cat out of the bag. One little tease for this October. Um, Werewolf Wednesdays. So we got four werewolf films we're covering them, and you know, throughout the month, there's there's gonna be. Trust me, we have a lot of episodes planned for October, just like last year. But every Wednesday throughout the month, there's four Wednesdays, obviously four episodes, and you know, cursed. I figured, uh, you know, Scream Factory is putting it out. In a couple months, I got that on pre-order. Um, there's, it's. I'm not, I don't want to say it's going through a resurgence, kind of like the way House of Wax did a year or two ago, because P 
people still don't have nice things to say about Cursed, but I personally have not seen Cursed in well over a decade, so I am kind of like holding out on tearing it apart until I rewatch it once my DVD copy or my Blu-ray copy comes in. Yeah, same here. Uh, I haven't seen it, and I, I vaguely remember a few things, but yeah, I haven't seen it since it first came out. But yeah, Werewolf Wednesdays is definitely a thing. We're going to be talking about, uh, obviously, American Werewolf in London, The Howling, Cursed, um, and uh, Bad Moon. Okay. Three of the three of the four are like quintessential werewolf films. So uh, the verdict's still out on Cursed. Like I said, it's been a while, but. I, I don't it's have a good a feeling about it. Yeah, don't don't. I I really don't have a good feeling about Cursed. I don't think it's gonna like suddenly become a underrated gem as they call it. No, I don't I don't see that happening at all. So anyway, um, so yeah, nothing good to say about the remake. In fact, I I'll, I'll say one more thing, one final thing in closing when it comes to the remake. If you're gonna remake. The Fog, you better fucking come swinging. You better come prepared. You better come knowing what the fuck you're doing. Whatever the hell they did 17 years ago was none of that. <laughs> so, that's it. Um, Alright, before we talk about this film and dive deep, let's do live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. We're doing pirate films, of course. Why not? Top five pirate films. Uh, I got a couple honorable mentions. Get that out of the way. Uh, they both involve a, a band of pirates taking over a ship. Uh, Deep Rising and Ghost Ship are my honorable mentions. My number five, <laughs> Jesus Christ speaking the devil, is another one. Virus. Where you on Virus? Gosh. I remember watching it or going to see it for my birthday. I've always liked Virus. I've never, ever understood the hate. It's got some pretty cool practical effects. Hell, I think there's like a stop motion sequence in one of the parts. But like, I mean, the movie, I know Jamie tears it to bits every time she gets a chance to talk about it, which isn't too often but I have heard her talk about it a couple times and both times she was not pleasant to it at all but I don't know I just never personally got the hate for virus so it's my number five no regrets uh what's yours first I just wanted to say I don't hate virus I just I'm indifferent towards oh. it I think I've saw I, guess, first I, I missed I mistook your oh god <laughs> I was just surprised that made your top five I didn't think that level of mediocrity would make number five I guess but, you know, right. it's your list. It ain't my list, so. Um, my honorable mention, I didn't put it on my list just for one reason. It's not a movie, but I wanted to mention it. It was the Star Series, Black Sails. 
awesome series. Uh, they poured a ton of money into it. The production was second to none production quality on that show. The writing was great. The acting was spot on. Good show. It just didn't get the numbers. I don't think Stars was hoping. I think it only lasted for like three seasons. Which on a like flag for a flagship show on a cable channel, three seasons isn't that great. So it definitely, I don't think, pulled in the numbers. But it was a great show. I really enjoyed watching it. But I just couldn't put it on the list because it's a show, not a movie. But I wanted to bring it up. That was a good one that came out a few years back. Um, so my number five, we're talking about modern pirates right now. Then Captain Phillips, uh, the one with Tom Hanks, and I am forgetting the guy's name. The guy who played the lead pirate. I'm sorry. He was um, not even gonna touch that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's like an African name. He was great in it. Um, so believable. It was realistic, and it's just scary to think like if I was ever on a boat in that area, it's just something you have to worry about. And, you know, you feel sympathetic for those guys. Like, they're just poor guys trying to feed their families, you know, or the rich Westerners. So, you know, it it was a Greengrass film, did a good job of understanding both sides. Really good. Um, Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks in the movie. But, yeah, that was enjoyable, Captain Phillips. Uh, For me, it's The Curse of the Black Pearl, my number four, Pirates of the Caribbean. I, I think that movie still holds up. I watched oh, it yeah. just a couple years ago in that movie. That's the one Pirates film that I'm just like, yeah, this is fucking good. I'm fine with this. The rest can go pack sand. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely Black Pearl. My number four. What's yours? So my number four is a childhood favorite of mine. Uh, and there's a couple of those on this list uh, for me. <laughs> my number four is Princess Bride. Uh, you know, when you hear the title and you first think about it, you might not be pirate movie, but when you actually rewatch it and think about it, it's a pirate movie. I mean, you know, you got the sword fights, you got the boats, uh, just awesome classic movie. Like that's just one of those. I have so many fond memories of watching, you know, Carrie Elwes, uh, Andre the Giant, Wallace Shawn, uh, Inconceivable, you know, just one of those things that always stuck in my head. Um, Inigo Montoya. I always love that bit. Just an awesome movie and uh, one of the first ones I think about with Pirates. So yeah, Princess Bride for me. Alright, my number three is a film that we just talked about recently on a top five. And that's Waterworld. Movie I fucking <laughs> love. Like I said, movie's so good. Me too. Um, just didn't get the love that it deserved. Yeah. 25, 26, 27, however long years ago. Uh, but yeah. We'll get to it one of these days. Don't worry. It's a bandwagon film. A lot of people that were shit talking that movie probably never even saw it or only uh, saw it. For the parts record, I've been a defender of that film since '96 when I first saw it. Yeah, it it got a bad rap. I, I thought about putting it on my list, uh, but I think it was on my list the other week too for the biggest bombs. So I didn't put it on just to keep things varied up. Um, but that would have been pro- maybe at the bottom of my list if. Uh, it hadn't been on my list the other night. So my number three is another childhood film, uh, Goonies. Um, you know, just an awesome movie. Like seeing uh, seeing uh, Sloth with his um, hat on, like on the ship, and then One-Eyed Willie and the curse. Hey, you guys! Yeah, one of the best memes ever. Um, just an awesome movie. Just... It, it, it just captured the 80s 
uh, sense of adventure with a group of kids. It just captured that and distilled it so well. Uh, and it's just such a flashback. Like anytime I watch it, I instantly am transported back to the late eighties, early nineties when I grew up. So I always loved that movie. So yeah, Goonies easily made my list at number three. All right, let's keep the conversation going. My number two, the Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Richard Donner crafted a fucking memorable film that just touched the hearts of millions of people that just lives on to this day. Uh, we covered it last year, Sean and I, and uh, got uh, got kind of emotional. If uh, I remember correctly, it's been a while, so many episodes, but yeah. Richard Donner passed away, so we decided to cover it. Um, or maybe I just got emotional listening to it, because it was such a fucking good, ep- good episode. Um, yeah, The Goonies, number two. What's yours? So, keep the, keep the nostalgia train rolling for me. My number two is another childhood favorite of mine. This one came a little bit later, but I was still a kid. My number two is Hook. Um, and this one... I know it might be a little controversial because I know it's not a hated movie, but I know it's not a universally loved movie either. I know it was kind of, you know, middle of the road reception wise. Some people liked it. Some people didn't like it. Uh, You know, I also like the Disney Peter Pan. Like there's other interpretations that you could argue is better. But for me, I always watched Hook. It just came out at the right time in my childhood. Uh, It was on cable a lot back in the day. So I just always watched it, and, you know, I'm a huge fan of Robin Williams. He's great in the movie. Huge fan of the Lost Boys and that, like, that they all look different, different airs. You know, obviously got Rufio. You know, how can you go wrong with that? Um, Yeah, and just Dustin Hoffman as Captain Hook, I think, was just awesome, just brilliant. I just love that movie. I know some people don't like it. I know there's arguably better interpretations of Peter Pan, but for me, Hook is always my go-to. Looky, looky, I got hooky. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I don't mind Hook. I really don't. My number one is a film that we are about to talk about. John Carpenter's The Fog, of course. Uh, just a lovely, lovely horror film that I can't wait to talk about in a minute. What is your number one? My number one is obviously Veggie Tales, the pirates that don't do anything. <laughs> um, no, not Veggie Tales. Um, my number one is Pirates, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. Like you said, easily the best pirates movie. Uh, even if you don't like any of the other ones, this one is a good standalone just to watch. Uh, it still holds up. Definitely the best one. Uh, I actually rewatched the original trilogy, not the like fourth and fifth one that came out. The tri- it was actually better than I remember it being the second and third one. Still not nearly as good as the Black Pearl, but they were a lot better. I remember not really liking the second and third one, but when I rewatched it, I appreciated it a lot more. You know, the storyline was still pretty good. A lot of the action was still pretty good. It just got a little too overwrought, but. Uh, you know, it's better than I remember. I don't know if it's because of the state of movies today that I just appreciated that a little more, just not seeing, like, just all superhero movies in the big budget type. But, yeah, they were definitely better, but uh, by far, Curse of the Black Pearl. Uh, 
I love that movie. I'll go back and rewatch that one constantly, even though I'm not rewatching any of the other ones. You know, what else can you say? Johnny Depp, uh, such a great performance. I know a lot of people think he was kind of overpraised for that, but uh, I don't know. I think he deserved the Oscar. I think he deserved all the recognition he got for it. Because uh, Jack Sparrow is just one of those standout characters, standout performance. Awesome movie. All right, let's uh, jump into it, shall we? Here we go! Alright, so the film opens at 11.55, almost midnight, enough time for one more story. One more story before 12, just to keep us warm. So we're on the coast... We're on, no, we're on the eve of the 100th anniversary of the coastal town of Antonio Bay in Northern California. Northern California. And Mr. Mockin, played by John Houseman, is telling ghost stories to the children by a campfire on the beach. And the main story that he tells is about a local ship that had crashed against the rocks. The wreckage sank and all the men aboard, with all the men aboard, uh, at the bottom of the sea lay the Elizabeth Dane with her crew. Their lungs filled with salt water, their eyes open, staring at darkness, and above, as suddenly as it come, the fog lifted, receded back across the ocean, and never came again. But it is told by the fishermen and their fathers and grandfathers that when the fog returns to Antonio Bay, the men at the bottom of the sea, out in the water by Spivey Point, will rise up and search for the campfire that led them to their dark, icy death. So John Hassman's opening monologue, which is supposed to transpire over a course of five minutes from 11.55 to 12 midnight, is, in fact, only two minutes and 25 seconds long. Aha. Time that shit. Were <laughs> <laughs> you sitting there with a stopwatch on your phone or really something imagine. like that? Because it didn't feel like it was five minutes. I'm like, that wasn't five minutes. Bullshit. Because I was thinking about grabbing the, uh, the audio for a... Uh, opening of this episode and I'm like that ain't five minutes no way no way no how no way and it's not it's half that uh so we get this beautiful shot that pans up over the uh beach to reveal the title card following by followed by shots of the town as we hear the voice of Stevie Wayne on the radio so following the success of uh Halloween Avco Embassy Films just jumped on board of that shit one of the pieces of that pie approach John Carpenter and they're like hey got this two picture deal now we actually told this story back I think it was the Halloween episode about how we got no it was either Halloween or Halloween 2 it would be more fitting for Halloween 2 so probably that one um where yeah he got approached actually it might have been part 3 anyway whatever the story's been told before but I'll refresh people's memories in case they haven't heard it uh Carpenter had a, th- a two-picture deal signed with Avco. This was the first film. The second film was Escape from New York. Uh, this led to... It was Halloween, too. Because this led to him being taken to court by... Um, uh, what's his name? Erwin um, Yoblins took him to court uh, after we heard about this. Because they they, they had, like... It was either a gentleman's agreement or something 
that they were supposed to do they were supposed to do the fog together uh, and then do Halloween too and then he goes and signs this two picture deal with Avco Embassy and does the fog with someone else so he ended up taking Carpenter to court and it ended up uh, he had to at least write the screenplay for Halloween too and that's whole the whole story how he you know wrote it over the course of like 10 days and a bunch of fucking alcohol or a bunch of beer or some shit like that and he got paid like some ridiculous amount of money like 10 million dollars just to do that so yeah it was crazy um and so yeah that that led to him being forced to write the screenplay to Halloween uh, Halloween too so yeah although the movie was a cheaply made independent production Carpenter sought to make it a appear for bigger and more expensive than its budget uh, would indicate. As such, he would opt to shoot the film in anamorphic widescreen Panavision, which is 235-1 format. It was shot in various locations throughout California over the course of one month. The iconic lighthouse featured in the film was fe- was uh, at Point Reyes, at the Gaw, um, which is in Marin County, yeah, Marin County, California. Sorry, I'm from the East Coast. This is all West Coast talk. Bodega Bay, which is uh, obviously where the, the birds was filmed, Hitchcock, was also used in the film in various scenes. In fact, I think it's the opening shot here is uh, is part of Bodega Bay. Carpenter also cited various sources of inspiration behind this, um, his desire to make the fog among them. There's a bunch of things. One is EC Comics. Um, he just particularly the, the the ghost stories and shit and like um, the tales of macabre uh, he also listed the 1958 horror film The Crawling Eye as inspiration due to its uh, depiction of the monsters hiding in the clouds so that's where the pirate thing came from as well as his he cited a visit to Stonehenge as a source of inspiration when he and his girlfriend slash production partner Deborah Hill visited the uh, historic monument. It was drenched in an appropriately portentous fog. Uh, he insisted that it was based on real events, hence no. He, he insists this is based on real events. The plot was based on a true incident in California up the coast by Santa Barbara um, in Joletta, California in the 1700s, there was a ship coming in with gold on it, and they put out a fire to guide the ship, but they put out a phony fire, and it ran into the rocks so that they could rob it. We had a bunch of pirates, but there was little truth in it. Um, while the entire film cost roughly $1.1 million to make the production company Avco, they, they, they spent nearly three times that just for the marketing. So they gave him about a million dollars to make this movie, and they went and spent three million dollars to market it. That makes sense. And finally, the film was supposed to come out in uh, on Christmas, nineteen seventy nine. It's kind of a weird film to come out on Easter. Or I'm sorry, it's, yesterday was Easter. Kind of a weird film to come out on Christmas. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they opted to wait until February when there would be a less major box office competition from other films and more theater screens available. Um, so yeah, back in the movie at the church, Bennett's all done for the night. Bennett here is played by John Carpenter. 
And uh, Father Malone tells him to come in at four the next day. But then he asks if he can get paid right there, right then, right now. And Malone's like, you know what? Let's come in at six instead. I'm all through, Father. Oh, thank you, Bennett. Uh, I won't need you until four tomorrow, Bennett. Yes, sir. Would you like something to keep you warm on the way home? No, thank you. Father, can I get paid? Why don't you come in at uh, six instead of four tomorrow? Yes, sir. So, the role of Father Malone here was originally supposed to be, well, it was originally offered, sorry, to Christopher Lee. Funny, because the role of Dr. Loomis from Halloween was also offered to Christopher Lee. Carpenter just wanted to work with Christopher Lee. That's all he wanted to do. I was going to say, he was just begging Christopher Lee. Come on, you got to take one of these parts one of these days. Come on, man. Yes. Um... So the idea was to have the actor serve as a, or the, the character serve as a, you know, like, a, like a godfather type that offers spiritual cons- uh, counsel to the terrified townsfolk. When Lee turned that shit down, he said it was, he was unavailable for the film, by the way. Uh, Hal Holbrook stepped in, and this wasn't the first time that Lee turned it Yeah, I told that already, Halloween. So, yeah, Hal Holbrook to the rescue. I really think Hal Holbrook did a fucking great job as Malone here. Um, I, I, maybe Christopher Lee could have done a better job. I doubt it, though. Uh, I think Hal is that good. Um, yeah, he's really good in this. Yeah. yeah in his limited role, yeah. Exactly. And uh, back to the other actor in this scene here. Of course, John Carpenter himself as Bennett. Um, he's named after Carpenter's friend Bennett Tramer. They went to the uh, University of Southern California together. If that name sounds familiar, well, in Halloween, there was a character named Ben Tramer that, uh, I don't know how to put it, He's he plays a pretty big role to uh, us horror fans, even though his character is barely even mentioned a couple times throughout the two films <laughs> then he, he gets killed off in part two um yeah in a vicious i'm still way holding too. out hope i'm still holding out hope he's gonna be in halloween ends i'm hoping they bring it uh you think so back. i'm hoping since uh none of the events of oh, the that's right halloween could never happen that's right he could be uh flame free that's right oh shit i never thought about that uh, so Malone gets up to get Bennett as he's leaving with a piece of, uh, masonry. When a piece of masonry falls from the wall and reveals his grandfather's old diary. The general reveals that it's 1880. The six founders of Antonio Bay, including his grandfather himself, deliberately sank a clipper ship named the Elizabeth Dane so that its wealthy, leprosy-afflicted owner, Blake, would not establish a leper colony nearby. The conspirators used some of the gold plundered from the, plundered from the ship to fund the town. So basically, this town of Antonio Bay was funded on robbed gold, more or less. 
Uh, Malone first discovers the journal that he gl- he glances at the title page, then flips to the opening page of the text that's partially blocked. So basically, what this note that I'm reading off says is that the actual no- notes that he's reading the, in the journal they don't read what the, the, what's written in there is not what he's reading. What's actually written in there, and you can see it if you pause the screen at the right time, is something, something, my college education to work writing dumb shit in this fucking movie's prop, being one. It's time to bring in the words guide or the big tits, tattoos, and shaved beavers. I know horny blocks, something, something would go blocked. Some of that. (laughs) I had no idea. <laughs> that is what's written in the journal. So the we get some paranormal activity going on. Like I, I call it here in my notes, the paranormal activity montage. Over the opening credits, we got mirrors shaking, rings, phones ringing, things starting uh, to shake uncontrollably, gas pumps going off, the uh, car maintenance equipment running itself, car alarms going off, etc. You know, a typical Saturday night downtown. Uh, so then we get Nancy Loomis's Sandy uh, waking up to find her dining room chair just fucking moots itself like a poltergeist. Um, so Nancy Loomis, let's bring her back up again because we talked about her in both Halloween and Halloween 3. Uh, and why not bring her up again for the fall? Because it's Nancy Loomis. It is the uh, the former Mrs. Tommy Lee Wallace. Um, are you familiar with her work? You went on those episodes because you didn't. Uh, so you didn't, you know, partake in those conversations about Nancy Loomis. Yeah, I'm not you know super. Who the fuck I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, I I remember from uh, like the horror movies, but I don't. Like I don't have That's an in-depth Annie knowledge. From Halloween. Yeah, of course. So, but I mean, I don't have like a. Uh, I don't know. I guess I don't. I'm not as informed as you are on Nancy Lewis. But I mean, of course, yeah. I, I mean, I remember Halloween, um, and that. But yeah, I, I'm drawing a blank on um, like anything you're referring to. I, I don't know. I don't. Know. I guess I'm not as informed on Nancy Lewis. Y'all can't be like me, right? Yeah. No, I'm joking. Um, so then we were introduced to Tom Atkins, Nick Castle. That name sounds familiar. Casually drinking and driving, you know, like we all do. When he picks up a hitchhiker named Elizabeth, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And she asks him if he's weird right off the bat. And he says uh, she's never hitchhiked before. And he tells her that he is, and the two share a laugh when she accidentally reveals that, that this this isn't actually her first time. He picks up on it and calls her out, but then suddenly all the windows in the car just fucking blow out. Like, pshh. Okay. So yeah, the name Tom Atkins' character uh, is Nick Castle, who is the actor who played the shape in the original Halloween. He's also... The director of The Last Starfighter, the director of Dennis the Menace from 1993. He's also the director of Major Pain. He's now retired, but you can catch him at a horror convention near you because he's pretty active in that community now. Um, it's just crazy Nick, to me in this he's movie. Awesome. He's like, no, he's awesome, but it's just crazy. He's like fourth or fifth build. Like, he's not even like a top billing. Like, it's all, it, it, like they have the main 
build people, you know, like Adrian Barbeau and Jamie Lee Curtis. And I forget who else. Um, I'm assuming. Um, what's her name? Uh, Janet Lee was one of the top ones, but he was like fifth or something like that. It was like also starring. I, I was surprised. I didn't realize that that Mr. Uh, Atkins was billed that low in this movie because he's, you know, one of the leads, I guess. I mean, he's effectively the male lead. I mean, really. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't the only character who was named after someone, by the way. So we also have Tommy Wallace, who's the production designer and editor on Halloween, The Fog. We have um, director as well as uh, director of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. There's a character, Dan O'Bannon, the weatherman, who's, of course, the writer of of Dark Star, who's also the writer, director of Return of the Living Dead. Um, Dan O'Bannon's just alien. (laughs) Dan O'Bannon. And Mrs. Copritz, producer on Someone's Watching Me which is a previous John Carpenter film. So, one more thing. Uh, when these two are in the car, they're listening to the radio, and they're like, this whole town listens to Stevie Wayne overnight, or during the day and, after, and, and evening. And it's just playing, like, you know, contemporary jazz music, and it's for good reason, too. They opted to play jazz music over rock music because it was cheaper to license. Duh. <laughs> so Stevie and the weatherman Dan Dan O'Bannon played by the legendary Charles Cyphers they're exchanging some information together when she goes back on the air and plays a song from a familiar band did you pick up on this band here she mentions the, the Coupe de Villes no you know no the Coupe I didn't de pick up are? no I mean I, I'm sure after you tell me I'll, I'll remember but yeah no <laughs> not, doesn't stand out it's uh, John Carpenter and Nick Castle uh, and Tommy Lee Wallace, the three of them, um, huh. have, have a band together, the Coupe de Villes. And they actually perform the theme song for Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, I know John Carpenter, you know, obviously he's way into his music because like, doesn't he still tour? To, uh, as far as I knew, he, like up until fairly recently, he was still touring, doing music and stuff like that. He is, I don't know if he's touring again. He hasn't really toured in a while. He plays one-off shows with his brother, his, no, with his uh, son and, and godson, um, Cody and, uh, uh, Daniel Davies the three of them who's been doing like I mean they've been killing it doing the Halloween scores they're also doing the upcoming Firestarter score um Carpenter did the, they, they did the score for uh Studio 666 recently that just came out the Foo Fighters horror film I mean they've been they've been pretty active recently so I'm pretty curious to hear what they've got cooking for Halloween ends because 
they've got some good shit. I gotta put, I gotta give it to them. Like they've been putting out some really stellar work. Like the score oh, yeah. for Studio Six 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 was fucking creepy as shit. The main theme for that was awesome. Um, they, they just been doing good stuff. So I'm really curious to hear what this sounds like. Uh, amongst other things, of course, this is fucking Halloween ends. We're talking about. Uh, but getting back on track here. Uh, yeah, Coop the Bills. Uh, and then I note here, although she know she was known for a slew of TV roles at the time, this was Adrian Barbo's first movie. This was her introduction to uh, film, and uh, it was actually written the 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 role of Stevie Wayne was written specifically for. Adrian Barbo, because at the time of this, behind the scenes, she was married to Carpenter. They had just gotten involved and then married, and yeah, not long after this, their son Cody would be born. So, I cannot wait to talk to her in a couple months. Oh uh, yeah, it, it. I'm looking forward to it as well. I mean, it'll be my first time being on for uh, you know the interview. So yeah, I'm definitely pumped. And I forgot how good she was in this movie. I mean, I always knew she was good, but rewatching it now, I was like, damn, I forgot. <laughs> she was on point in this film for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. So we arrive to the three fishermen who were uh, out there late night drinking and fishing. They're out there with uh, Nick's boat, we find out later on. Uh and they hear on the radio about the fog because uh, Dan tells uh, Stevie to report it and she does and like we hear uh, George Buck's like there ain't no damn fog bank out there. Slight pause. He's like, <laughs> hey, there's a fog bank out there. <laughs> I know. It's funny as like shit that he part. does that. He, he's like, there ain't no fog and literally a second later, there's some fog. <laughs> I just love that part. She's crazy. There's no fog bank out there. What do you know about her? She owns that lighthouse. I know that. Her son plays Little League with my kid brother. She's a mother? <laughs> I thought you were happily married. <laughs> Not that happy. <laughs> fog bank out there. Hey. There's a fog bank out there. Fun fact, too, this is actually George Buck Flowers' first collaboration with John Carpenter. He would go on to be, of course, Red, Back to the Future, and he'd appear in Carpenter films, Starman, They Live, Escape from New York, and Village of the Damned. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the fall comes, breaks the generator, prevents them from taking off before the clouds consume them, and the deadly pirates inside go for the kill. So the head ghost in the film here, Captain Blake, is actually played by the now legendary makeup specialist and special effects artist Rob Bottin. This is Bottin himself, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, Didn't yeah, know that. it's yeah. it's the it's the second of three films he ever appeared in, and the only for which he is credited. During production, the twenty-year-old Bottin asked if he could play the role of the. Uh, the, the, the role of Blake Carpenter immediately told him to stand up waiting for the director to tell him to leave the set for, on the spot Bottin was surprised to learn that Carpenter was studying the height of the man he stood at nearly 6 foot 5 so Carpenter cast him uh, you know for his forebo- uh, foreboding size 
that was needed for the character. So, yeah, these three get it. And then uh, Dan calls Stevie again, trying to work his charm, saying, his, saying that her previous report was false before asking to take her out for dinner, which he uh, kindly declines. He's pushing it. So Beth and Nick and Elizabeth, who are in fucking bed together. <laughs> that was quick. She's on the Atkins diet for sure. <laughs> yeah, right. See, I it's yeah, it's that uh it's that activia. Um I'm familiar with that Atkins charm, but son of a bitch, she wanted zero time with his, he wanted he wasted zero time with Elizabeth. <laughs> I know, I <laughs> forgot how quick it was. I, I I remember uh from previously watching it that obviously they slept together, but I forgot how quick it was like literally scene to scene. It's like, so quick, dude. I'm like, God damn, you wasted no time. You literally waited one scene to get in bed with her. Yeah, it, like, it was pretty funny. And, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. Tom Atkins around this time. I don't know if he picked me up in the oh, truck. He had that charm. I mean, he, he might have me charm, in the bed. Man. He might have me in the bed. I don't know. Like, it's Tom <laughs> fucking Atkins. Yeah, I mean, how does that conversation happen? Like, they're just driving. It's like, so you want to fuck? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like alpha uh, dog. <laughs> yeah, I mean, shit. So there's also this bit with the the pirate knocking on the door with his hook. So Nick gets up and throws some clothes on, but then as he's about to open the door and meet his demise, the grandfather clock suddenly breaks, which stops him from opening and dying. And we hear Stevie Wayne announce it's 1 a.m. as she signs off for the night. So the next morning, Stevie's son Andy's playing on the beach when he sees a piece of gold reflecting towards him. So he goes after it and finds a piece of driftwood with the word Dane inscribed. And he takes it home and wakes his mother up to show her what he found. He asks her if she can make a pound, a stomach pounder afterward. I'm like, okay. I haven't heard that term in fucking forever. <laughs> so... When Andy sees the wood on the beach, the audience can see Goat Rock Beach in the background. This formation is part of Sonoma Coast State Beach, where it's predominantly it's prominently seen in the background of the final scene of the Goonies. Through uh, it's it's those shot from the other direction, but that's it. Yeah. Speaking of, they also shot part of it at Bodega Bay the same location from the Goonies, the birds, and I know you did last summer. The scene at the dock of Bodega Bay was filmed in a single day. At one point during the movie, Tom Atkins' character mentions Bodega Bay. That is the scene in which, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier in the episode, The Birds was filmed. When uh, Tippi Hendren's character pulls into town, all hell breaks loose. In this movie, when Jamie Lee Curtis breaks, pulls into town, all hell breaks loose. Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, is uh, the, the real-life daughter of Janet Lee. Oh, no, 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 wait, no, 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 no resemblance. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Because, you know, Tip, Tippi Hendren is actually the mother of Melanie Griffith, not Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Janet Lee. Well, we'll get to her in a minute. She's in this. Um <laughs> So yeah, the next day, uh, Nick and Elizabeth go to the boatyard for his boat, which he let the fisherman borrow, like I mentioned earlier. But it never returned, and Nick's told he worries too much. So he says he's going to see someone who owes him a favor, 
And then we cut to him on a boat with Liz joining along after asking if it was all right. Um, yeah, she's like, man, if I join along, and he's like, I thought you said you had to go to the next town. And she's like, I find yeah. this shit fascinating. And plus you had <laughs> me in bed, so I'm not a one and done kind of gal. So we cut back to Sandy, uh, Nancy Loomis, and her boss, Kathy Williams, played by Janet Lee, the mother of J- Jennifer, Jennifer Jason Lee, Jesus Christ, the mother <laughs> of Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, going over the big uh, centennial, centennial center, I'm going to say this right. Going over the big centennial celebration planned for the Antonio Bay later on. Uh... So let's talk about Janet Lee for a moment. You know, we could talk about Psycho till the cows come home. I love Psycho, but I mean, Janet Lee's been in a bunch of stuff other than this. And uh, I think her final role was uh, Halloween H2O. But uh, Jan- Janet Lee, of course, like I said numerous times, the daughter, the mother of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, hang on a second, I'm pulling her up right now. Because she's been in a lot. Uh, the Vikings, uh, a, a show from the 60s that, or a movie from the 60s that um, Carpenter was a big fan of. And that's actually what led to her being cast in this film. Because him being a big fan of that movie. Um, yeah, she was in like the old school version of Little Women. I yeah, that. I was about to say that. Little Women, Bye Bye Birdie, Touch of Evil. Uh, the Naked Spur, My Sister Eileen, Walking My Baby Back Home, a uh, bunch of stuff Janet Lee was in. But I, I bring up Psycho a bunch because that was obviously the role that she was most known for. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely what I think of. Uh, just because, you know, when she, obviously when she was in her heyday, I, my parents weren't even alive yet. So, you know, for I haven't seen a lot of her filmography. I've seen a few things, but yeah, Psycho is always what pops into my head first well there's something about the character of marion crane that's like that's not your ordinary like you know damsel in distress or or final girl even though she's not um you know because she's you know right off the bat in that movie and i'm not trying to drift to turn this into a psycho conversation but i'm just trying to prove a point or or, or, or help prove i'm not really trying to prove, prove a point I'm just trying to help my conversation flow. But I'm just saying, like, the way her character in that movie is, like, on the run because, you know, she steals from her boss and all that stuff. Then she's trying to meet up with her boyfriend and, and get away. And something like that, you know, takes guts. And, you know, she doesn't, she's not the type that backs down. And that's So that's what I, I think about her character, uh, Marion Crane. That's what I think about. Um and you know Janet Lee plays the role fucking incredibly I, I love going back to that film from time to time um, even though she's only in the first half of the movie she's definitely a standout spoiler <laughs> well sorry god 70 year old spoiler or whatever whatever it is um, or 60 year old spoiler yeah 60 years so um, Nick and Liz are taking a boat right out to the waters and eventually find this boat. Then some more of Sandy and Kathy as they're going on this gorgeous drive along the ocean line. And they're going up to the church. Um, 
it's also revealed that her husband was one of the fishermen from earlier. So, uh, she's worried about it, and Sandy's trying to calm her down. And then, uh, Nick finds his boat with various things suspiciously filled with water, and all of his gauges are broken. So, we cut back to Sandy and Kathy again. They go to Father Malone at his church, and Sandy keeps bringing up bad signs after the paranormal events from the former evening. And he reads to them a page from his grandfather's diary when it's revealed that they stole all the gold that they brought back. And they're about to honor murderers. He says the town's got a curse and he's not about to help in any way. Kathy thinks he's exaggerating and going a little bit, you know, over the top on this. But taking things way too seriously, all that stuff. But now, while investigating the uh, the boat back with uh, Nick and, and Liz, including a beer beer can full of salt water, the eyeless corpse of Dick uh, Baxter falls on Elizabeth as Nick's telling her. Did I say Dick Miller? I think you were about to say Dick Miller and then you caught yourself, but then I okay. just thought of Dick Miller. <laughs> yeah, he, his eyeless corpse falls on top of uh, uh, Elizabeth as Nick's telling her about a story about his father and a similar incident. And it scared the fucking shit out of her. And in real life, it scared the fucking shit out of her. Like, she wasn't prepared for that. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, uh, so while she's not the lead of the movie, I, I just want to bring this up as well. This is we're talking about Jamie Lee Curtis. She's on the poster of this movie. And, and it's kind of given off her holding the door of the fog bank up on the other side. And it, it, it kind of gives off the illusion that she is the Stevie Nicks character. Stevie Nicks. Stevie Wayne character. <laughs> I thought I was going to be the one that said that. Stevie Nicks. One of us. Um, it was bound to happen, right? No, it, it kind of gives off that illusion or idea that maybe she is Stevie Wayne in this movie. But no. Um, yeah. The reason it, it for that, it, it was just Avgo capitalizing on the, the success of Halloween, that's all. Yeah, I don't necessarily blame him, but yeah, it definitely does give off the wrong impression, or like a false impression, kind of, because I even had that too. I had the Mandela effect where I thought Jamie Lee Curtis was the DJ, and even rewatching it now, even though I had seen The Fog not too long ago... It's just a ho-hum role. Uh, you know, I don't blame Jamie Lee Curtis. I don't think she did. No, it but it's is. Just a, it really is. Just, and there's a reason for that, too. Go on. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, it's just I forgot how much of a just mediocre character and role, uh, you know, her character is. You know, obviously, it's not Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, she can only, you know, you can only do what you can do with what you're given. But I just forgot the whole Elizabeth character is just like, blah, in this movie. Yeah, she's definitely beefed up in the remake, but eh, for for bad effect <laughs> though. Um, no, the reason for that is because after Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis thought that she was gonna go on to do like solid things, like big things, like after like her response and everything from that movie. But I, I think she turned up on like an episode of uh, The Love Boat with her mother Janet Lee, and nothing really happen like the roles didn't come calling like she thought I guess so Carpenter felt like he owed her you know a favor or whatever and he reached out to her with this role and 
she agreed to take it on, but he, he, I don't remember if it's, I, I can't remember the story, uh, enough to, to say whether he told her, but there's, you know, it's not the lead role. It's still something, but it's not the lead. Or maybe she was offered the lead. Cause I'm going off a of memory off the story I, uh, that he told on one of the, one of the thousands of Halloween documentaries, uh, this story was told, and I remember it very well. Not too well, obviously. I can't remember if it, if it was um, her agreeing to take a minor role in the film and not the lead, or if he offered her the role as it is, and it was just a minor. Not when I say minor, I mean like you know she's not the lead. She's not Stevie Wayne. You know she's Elizabeth, <laughs> um, who's not the lead. Even though Avgo wants you to believe she is, she's not. Uh, so let's get back on this. Uh, Stevie Wayne arrives at the KB Radio Studio Lighthouse. And while driving to the lighthouse, Stevie flips around the, the radio dial and a broadcast confirming a search for the ship. The, the, the seagrass is heard. And the voice mentions a, a sweep south of Waitley Point and Arkham Reef. Both Arkham Reef and the surname, surname Waitley are references to writer H.P. Lovecraft, as he used both repeatedly in his stories. And Carpenter is, in fact, a huge fan of Lovecraft and wanted to incorporate that some way, somehow, into this. So that's his little nod to Lovecraft. Um, so this fucking lighthouse, man. Let's talk about this thing, shall we? So yeah, it's a very unique. Uh, setting for this movie like just such a cool idea having a radio station in a lighthouse I mean totally and impractical and probably unrealistic I don't know if that could ever happen but it's really cool you know visually for the movie at least so because the station was filmed on location in an actual lighthouse at uh, um, Point Reyes uh, they had to go to cast the, the, the crew well, even some of the cast too, uh, more specifically Adrian Barbo, uh, had to travel all these steps. It was like th- over 300, like 350 or something like that, something around that number. I'm sure. I mean, I've been in lighthouses, and, like taking tours and stuff like that. And right. It's a bitch going up to the top of that. Some days they even had to close it because of high winds. Like it was like it's it was that fragile. Well, and that's why you would never have a recording studio up there. Like, can you imagine? Like, let's high wind. Like, be like, listen to KB. <laughs> fucking yeah, right. Or, or exactly. Really hard. Like, you would never record there. So they chose this place because it's the second foggiest spot in the U.S., second only to Nantucket Island. Point Reyes Lighthouse still stands today, and has even been added to the. National Register of Historic Places. Uh, it was added back in 91, 30 years ago. It also has 30 steps that, yeah, we talked about that. So inside the studio, she sets the wood down next to a tape player that is playing the After Hours KAB promo track on a loop, but the wood inexplicably begins to seep water, causing the tape player to short circuit, and that's when a mysterious man's voice emerges from the tape player swearing revenge. And the word six must die appear on the wood before it bursts into flames. 44. The smooth sound. Fabulous. 1340. KAB. 
fire but then she sees that the wood has once again it's reading Dane and the tape player begins working normal again so that happens and we cut back to Nick and Liz it's like jumping back and forth between Nick and Liz to Stevie heading back to the mainland as they discuss all that they just just discovered uh, then we see Stevie calling her son to find out where he found the wood. And she makes some promise that he'll stay inside for the night and not go outside. And Andy tells his babysitter his mother didn't want anything when she called. And then questions the large fog bank that's approaching over the water. You sly little dog, you. So when Elizabeth is alone in the autopsy room, this just cuts back to this autopsy room. And this is just a random scene. That is thrown in for good reason. This is when she's just standing around and just a random corpse just gets up and starts approaching her. And <laughs> this this whole scene, like she's just staring at a fucking wall. Like she's like just standing there, like Jamie Lee Curtis, like dit, dit, I'm definitely not looking I, at the corpse. Dit, dit, I forgot duh. this scene existed when I watched it a couple uh, whenever I was before this last time. I, I yeah. legit forgot this scene existed. Cause that's how fucking just off the wall it is. Pointless. Yeah. It really is, but there's a reason for it. We'll get into it later on. Uh, in the meantime, it's time for the fog to roll in during the centennial celebration outside. Nick hears Stevie talking about his ship while he's drinking at the bar, and he calls the station to talk about the fog and how it was glowing and moving against the wind on its own path. And the whole town went unglued with it. She then proceeds to tell him about the wood drift her son found and what happened afterward. So, one of the fog effects that Dean Cundy did was he took a black stage, all black, and shaped the outline of the buildings with this, like, black whatever, like, just different shapes. And then he blue uh dry ice for the fog itself into it and filmed it and then they spliced that effect into the film to give it an appearance in places that they couldn't afford to do like the whole the whole shots from a distance and some of the wide you know the yeah. wide town shots yeah i'm sure it was tough because i mean you're fucking run-of-the-mill spirit halloween fog machine isn't going to cut that shit when they need it, like, this well, whole area use, filled with fog, you know? Right. They did use fog machines, but not, like, for stuff like this, obviously, you couldn't do it. Especially from, like, when you see, like, the big, thick, glowing fog from a distance out over the water. They didn't have, like, 50 people out there on a boat, like, making this thing go off of, like, some effect making it glow. Like, none of that shit was happening. Like, this was... Yeah. Um... So Dan, the weatherman, gets to his station and calls Stevie at the radio station to tell her that another fog bank has appeared and is moving towards town. And as they're talking, the fog bank appears outside of his door 
and he goes, he hears a knock at the door, and he's going to answer or check it out, and she's like, on the other side, on the other end, Stevie's like begging him not to go, uh, she's telling him to stay there, don't do it, he answers it anyway, and is killed by the, uh, the pirate. Hold on, I'm gonna try something. I can see it. Hey, now what is the big deal? You've seen fog once, you've seen it for life. Oh, there's something different about this fog, Dan. It glows. Can't you see anything yet? Glows? Oh, I get it. You take something to keep you going, right? Does it make you feel a little weird sometimes? Hey. What? The lights went out. Everything's going crazy. Barometers falling, temperatures dropping. Then what is it? What the hell's that? Then what is it? What's happening? What is it? What's happening? Someone's shining a light through the window. Dan, listen to me. Hold on, sweetheart. I want to check this out. Dan! Dan, stay on the phone! This has got to be a joke. Someone's at the front door, sweetheart, playing a stupid joke. And whoever it is, they ain't gonna like finding me home. Dan, stay away from the door! Anybody here? Some asshole got drunk and started taking this hundred-year-old business too seriously. Get to the chin to the uh, to the to the throat. And uh, yeah, she has to. She has no choice but to listen in in horror. So the celebration continues as we see Stevie attempt to dispatch the sheriff after Dan's death. She's broadcasting for him to call. So we see him at this diner, go over to the payphone, and call. Um, but before they can talk, we see the fog cut the power lines, uh, uh, the phone lines, and then we we see it again, go in and cut the town power. So. I guess that means the celebration's over. That's some smart fog. Smart fog. It's got a mind of its own. Um, so Stevie, though, she's determined to keep it, keep it up. She fires up that backup generator downstairs as we see her call. Um, no, we see her son question the babysitter about the power as the fog rolls over Stevie's home. Stevie begs her listeners to go to her house and save her son when she sees the fog closing in from her lighthouse vantage point. And as the fog envelops uh, Stevie's house, the, the, the pirates kill the babysitter, Miss Copritz. Uh, they rescue Andy. They, no, they, they pursue Andy. But Nick arrives at the nick of time and rescues him. Um, 
and this is my personal note here, I think one of the main things that attracts me to Carpenter's earlier work is the way he's able to pull off intensity. Like, this scene here, like, the way he gets him at the nick of time, and, like, they're trying to escape, but nothing's working at all. It's like, yeah, it's a cliche. It's a big ball of cliche. Don't get me wrong. But it's something about Carpenter's material that just works for me. And I'm just all in on it. I fucking love it. I'm here for it all week, as they say. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I'm a huge fan of Carpenter. Yeah, he, does. he just does so much. Uh, so the three take off after avoiding the pirates and who were close to uh, closing in on them. A bunch of pirates in this scene too. They're just literally surrounding the truck before they just pull off. So Stevie tearfully apologizes to Andy over the air for not being there, but she says that she needs to stay and warn everyone since that since uh, she has the best view of the town from her point. Andy, I don't even know if you can hear me. I'm sorry that I didn't come for you, that I wasn't there. Andy, please understand. I have to stay here. The fog is moving inland, away from the beach. towards Antonio Bay. So us being parents ourselves, let's talk about this fucking decision to stay at the lighthouse over being there for your son. <laughs> yeah, you would just hear dead air. You'd hear me be like, nope, and you hear the mic fucking fall on the ground, and then it would just be dead air. I'd be like, he, all you people are on your own. I'm getting my kid. <laughs> and my mic would drop. Right. I'd be like, enjoy reruns from uh, the fucking jazz hits from the fucking <laughs> 70s. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So everyone heads to the rendezvous at the old church on Beacon Hill. The fog follows them there, of course, because why not? As Stevie calls out the progress of the fog through town over the radio, she mentions... Uh, I mentioned that already. No. She mentions uh, Russellville Road and Smallville Road. These are two prominent streets in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where John Carpenter spent time growing up. And this is also a good point to mention that there was a novelization written by Dennis Etchinson who clarified the fact that the people that the sailors wanted to kill or the pirates wanted to kill were not random, in fact, but they were descendants of those who played a role in the shipwreck. Uh, Dan Etchinson, or Dennis Etchinson wrote the novelizations for Halloween's 2 and 3 as well as John uh, uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome. So we see the fog get to the lighthouse and to Stevie as well. And then back inside the back room at the church, um, they locate a gold cross in the in the wall cavity, which is made from the rest of the stolen gold. As the pirates begin their attack, Malone takes the gold out to the uh, into the chapel. Meanwhile, the pirates are, like, crashing through the stained glass panels and, like, pulling people and shit. Like, it's a cool shot. Um, knowing that they have to return... Knowing that they have returned all... Returned to, to take six lives in lieu of the original six conspirators. 
who had led them to their deaths, Malone offers the gold and himself to Blake to spare the others. Um, and yeah, the lighthouse, the pirates attack the the yeah the pirates attack Stevie. They it goes up to the roof. Intense. This has always been intense to me. Um, it's always gotten me. I'm always like at the edge of my seat watching, and I don't get like that normally, especially for a film like this that I've seen like 20 times in the past. Like it still to this date gets me. Yeah, um, and I think what adds to it is just it seemed unpredictable, like the babysitter getting it for no real good reason. You know, you just weren't sure who exactly was going to go. And, you know, this movie, even though Adrian Barbeau is definitely the lead, you know, it's a very ensemble cast, so you're really not sure who might be getting it or who might not. Because apart from her, I mean, it, it's fairly ensemble, the way the cast is, so you're just wondering who's going next. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh... So yeah, the pirates at the lighthouse also disappear. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I got ahead of myself. So at the lighthouse, uh, the pirates attack Stevie on the roof. Blah blah blah. Back to the church, Blake seizes the gold cross, which begins to glow. Nick pulls Malone away uh, from the cross seconds before it disappears in a blinding in a yeah blinding flash of light. Along with Blake and his crew. So they all go bye-bye, disappear, just like that. Poof, be gone. Yeah, and I just like the red uh, eyes. Like, I know some people might look at this yeah, and, me too. and be like, it's cheesy. But I don't know. I just It's such an 80s throwback. I just love the glowing red eyes poking through. Because, you know, everything else was kind of nondescript. You see a little bit more at the end of the Pirates. But up until then, it's just been shapes in the fog. But, I, you know, it just added something having the red glowing eyes looking back. It just made it a little more menacing to me. So the pirates of the lighthouse also disappear and the fog vanishes and Stevie gets down from the fruit from the roof and makes it back to the microphone to announce what just happened and warns everyone to look out and see for the fog. I don't know what happened to Antonio Bay tonight. Something came out of the fog and tried to destroy us. In one moment, it vanished. But if this has been anything but a nightmare, and if we don't wake up to find ourselves safe in our beds, it could come again. To the ships at sea who can hear my voice, look across the water into the darkness. Look for the fog. Speaking of the film's finale in which Stevie seeks refuge at the top of the lighthouse, Carpenter resorted to some technical trickery to achieve what Mother Nature would not allow, and that's the scene here when the fog goes away. Um, he essentially played it in reverse and just told Adrian Barbo to be careful when she blinks. <laughs> And that makes sense. Yeah, they you can definitely tell there's quite a few shots with a fog or it's played in reverse. You know, it's a good effect. It still looks really good. Even even though, you know, I think you have to have a trained eye kind of, you know, movie nerds like us, they kind of like how things work. Probably know that. But I think just for an average viewer, I don't think you would catch that. But yeah, playing in reverse, old trick. But it definitely works really well in this movie with the fog. Oh, one more note here. I forgot to mention uh, Stevie Wayne, Adrian Barbo. She doesn't interact with anyone else in this movie. Like, 
she has one scene with her son, and that's it. <laughs> Did you notice that? Watch this again. Yeah, yeah, I forgot how cut off she was from the rest of the crew. I, I knew for the most part she was in the lighthouse, but I thought, I don't know, it, it's just that Mandela effect. I thought she had at least a scene or two with some of the other uh, town people, but I guess not. All right. Um... So Malone's now alone, and he contemplates why he was spared by Blake and asks, why not six, given that there have been only five deaths? However, moments later, the fog reappears as he walks out to the main room inside the church along with the pirates, and Blake turns and decapitates Malone as the screen cuts to black. Yeah. So in in the 1990s, John Carpenter mentioned during an interview with Fangoria that he was interested in producing an anthology series to uh, tie in with The Fog. Um, I I don't know if it was going to be like... You're talking about body bags? No, he was going to do an anthology series like... He eventually would do body bags, but this is, you know, the fog. Like, I, it was, I, no one knows it was going to have characters from Antonio Bay or take place in the same town. Just a bunch of stuff, kind of like Twin Peaks. I don't know. It just didn't happen because uh, he implied that uh, as, as the series progressed, uh, connective ties to his 1980 film would be more apparent. However, the series never materialized, and in 2005, a remake was produced. Um, okay, real quick. Uh, John Carpenter's original rough cut of The Fall came in at just 80 minutes, which was too short for legitimate theatrical release. Carpenter added more scenes as a result, including the... Oh, he also said in the documentary that I watched that it had nothing to do... It, it was... It probably had something to do with the 80-minute time length, but he also said that it was just boring and nothing happened. It wasn't scary. It was just a big plate of blah. So, touched up some stuff, went in, shot some more shit, uh, including uh, the prologue to the film in the beginning with the old man, with uh, John Houseman's character. That was added... um, yeah, good choice. The opening was strong. No. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, Grizzly, every time you saw a close-up shot in this movie, like, the majority of the time was when, like, like you get, like, someone got stabbed or something like that. Close-ups of death scenes, st- stab punctures, example. Um, that was a reshoot. Uh, Elizabeth facing the, 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 the whole morgue scene with the whole animated corpse, the random animated corpse that was thrown in uh, in the reshoots. Um, the finale on the lighthouse roof with Stevie on top of the structure was uh, part of the uh, reshoots. And yeah, all in all, roughly one third of the finished film came from these extensive reshoots. And uh, yeah, that is it. That is The Fog from 1980. John Carpenter. Um, all right, let's talk box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. 
So the film was released again, like I mentioned before, on February 1st, 1980 from Avco Embassy Pictures. Uh, couldn't get a theater count, couldn't get an opening weekend, couldn't get a second weekend. I got I, I got a total gross though. I got I did get something. It grossed $21.3 million altogether against a $1.1 million budget. Remember, the budget was tripled for uh marketing. Oh, so triple. Oh, it still it still <laughs> made money. Still made money. Still made money. Oh yeah, it made um, a shitload of money considering that budget. I forgot how low budget of this movie was because, I mean, you know, you hear he was signed with a studio for a two movie deal. But I mean, it's essentially an independent movie uh, when you look at that budget. I mean, that's really low. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, let's take a walk to the Chris Corner. See what they all have to say about this movie. <laughs> Falling Scale Rotten Tomatoes score of 75%. That's based on 68 reviews with the, with the uh, critical consensus saying a well-crafted return to horror for genre giant John Carpenter. The fog rolls in and wraps viewers and suitably slow building chills. It's got a meta score of 55 out of 100 based off of 11 reviews. Um, and Ebes gave the film two out of four stars, commenting, this isn't a great movie, but it does show great promise from Carpenter. Also says, the movie's made with style and energy, but it needs a better villain. Slant Magazine, do you, what, do you, what do you say in response to what Ebes just said? I don't know. I mean, I think the villain's fine for like a ghost story. I don't know. To me, once you over-explain shit, that's when it all goes downhill. So, I don't know. I, I like it. You know, you get enough explanation to know what's going on. But I don't need to see the main pirate ghost uh, fucking expositing at any point or anything like that. Or flashbacks. I don't know. It would just bog the shit down. I don't know. I, I thought the whole pirate fog thing was pretty awesome as far as an antagonist role. Let's see. Slant Magazine said Carpenter's use of 235 anamorphic widescreen is beyond legendary. And his compositions evoke a town that may as well be the last remaining one on the face of the earth. Chris Justice at HorrorClassic.com commented, The music is also classic Carpenter. More on that in a minute. And although the composer actually scrapped his original score and rewrote it to to better match the film's vibe, viewers benefit greatly from his acute sense of rhythm, composition, and tone. His stark notes add another layer of complexity to a film that too often is forgotten. The editing is also brilliant. At 89 minutes, the film packs quite a punch and is worth every second. I agree, Chris. Zombie Mania, 80 Movies to Die For author Arnold T. Blumberg wrote that the film was a very difficult scale, a very, I'm sorry, let's start that over. A very effective small-scale chiller, and an attempt to capture the essence of a typically of a typical spooky American folklore, while simultaneously paying homage to the EC comics of the 1950s and the then very recent Italian zombie influx. Uh, 
Slam Adams at the House of Geekery commented, The fog is an incredibly an incredibly atmospheric horror flick that takes the technical expertise of Halloween and adds more obvious supernatural elements. Carpenter picks and chooses what to show and what not to show, opting that more is less. It is impressive the way they seem to have complete control over the actual fog, given it an actual giving it an otherworldly sentiment feel. Alright, let's talk about music. Music from the motion picture. Alright, so the score was composed by Mr. John Carpenter himself. Of course. Who else would it be? (laughs) So, the score itself was, funny enough, released several years after the film was released. It came out in 84. I'm sorry. Oh, wow, it's more than several. 94. Holy shit. 14 years is when the score finally officially came out. Uh, This is actually one that Carpenter considers one of his best, and I agree. That is good. Uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, 94, and then released again in 2000 as an extended edition featuring the opening dialogue from John Houseman, along with a six-minute interview with a radio station about the film. Uh, then it came out once again in 2012, 10 years ago, with an entire new brand with, with an entire brand new disc that's chock full of fresh new songs that didn't make the cut on any of the other releases. Um, yeah, this is just beautifully eerie score that's just always worked for me. Um, just yeah. the perfect use of keyboard synthesizer. I I just yeah. What were you going to say? It fits the film very well. Uh, I'm always a fan of Carpenter scores. Uh, You know, I I like that 80s synth sound anyway, and he's like the fucking master at it. So, yeah, I've always appreciated it. I think it adds to the movie for sure, and, yeah, it just increases the tone and the just overall ambiance of the movie. So, yeah, awesome score. Yep. Um... All right, let's talk pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. All right, you want to go first for your pros? Yeah, sure, I can go first. So I'm not going to go, go I'm not going to talk about it much more because we just did. But my first right. pro would be the score. Uh, again, love the 80s synth. Carpenter's awesome at it. Uh, I don't think it's his best work in this movie, but I, it's up there. Like, it, it's a really good score. It, it's always stood out to me. Um, my next pro is just some of the cast. You know, you have Adrian Barbeau just rocking it in this. Tom Atkins. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was fine. Um, the father in the movie is great. It's just a lot of, um, good actors and good roles in this movie and the performances, you know, while nothing earth shattering, nothing Academy Award winning for a little almost independent ghost movie like this. It's very well acted. So I would say that's one of its strengths. Um, my next pro Dean Cundy and John Carpenter do it again. I mean, this movie is fucking beautiful to rewatch just the wide shots of the beach and then mm-hmm. even when we're not there, when we're in the scary, dark fog scenes, just the way they make the fog move 
and just the way everything oh, looks yeah. just the it's just very foreboding very atmospheric uh you know just all that alone makes the movie stand out i mean it's just beautiful to look at i forgot how well done um you know the cinematography and directing is in this movie i can believe you forgot dean kind even did this one <laughs> until rewatching it but yeah it makes sense once i rewatch it really yeah, that's I think just, it's I one of Cundy's most beautifully shot movies. Yeah, it is, but you know when you got somebody like him, I mean, there's just right. Like, take your fucking pick. Like, there's just so there's many. So many. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's my pros. All right, I'll go down my list of pros. Uh, first and foremost, it's one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever seen, especially for its time. Um. One of the best collection of genre actors the 80s had to offer. I mean, this thing has a who's who of genre veterans. You know, now they're veterans. Before they were just fresh. You know, you got your Adrian Barbo. You've got your Tom Atkins. You've got even Janet Lee for, for you know, safekeeping. Um, you know, you got Nancy Loomis popping up. You've you've got just so many people. Even if they show up for the slightest scene, it's it's good to see them all. Uh, one of the no, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. So it has a uh, legit eerie feel to it. Uh, Prime Tom Atkins and Adrian Barbo really stamping her place into horror history. Those are all my pros. Corey, what are your cons? So I, I have a couple. Uh, nothing super major. One, I think it has a few too many characters. While it has a lot of great actors in it, I think there's a few that could just be cut. You know, I, did I necessarily need um, Janet Lee riding around in her big, um, you know, old school boat station wagon? Yeah, I mean, it was fine, but I don't know. I think the movie would have benefited. You still have it as an ensemble. I get it's a town, like the fog is happening to the whole town. But I think it would have benefited from maybe focusing a little bit more on some of the characters and cutting some of the more extraneous characters. Uh, That's one knock, I would say. It's just a little bit too much. I mean, especially with the runtime, it's just hard to set all that stuff up, you know. And I'm not saying make the movie longer. I'm just saying, you know... I like the lean runtime on this. I like the pacing. So maybe just cut a few of the characters. Um, my other con would be, and it's not, like I said, it's not a huge one. I know they added some of the stabbing and some of the gore. I actually think this movie would have benefited if it went a little further. Like if they had a little bit more special effects budget, show a little bit more oh. gore. I don't know. Cause like Halloween is just so masterfully done. And that's obviously not gore. You don't see anything in that movie. This isn't no, on that level. No, so, yeah, you don't see anything. So this isn't, to me, on that level. I would have actually liked it a little bit more if you see, you know, a little bit more stabbing or a little bit more tore up stuff or more drowned people. I don't know. I, I just wanted to see a little bit more. I think it would have added to the ghost story and just added to the atmosphere of the movie. You know, I'm not saying it's got to be like a splatter flick or anything like that. But just a little bit more. I think Carpenter was on the right track when he reshot and added because he's like, Jesus Christ, the whole movie is just the fog rolling around and then people just die. You know, so I think he was on the right track. I just wish there was a little bit more. But yeah, that was it for me for the cons. Uh, I don't have any cons. 
not gonna lie. I, I, I think this movie's just, yeah, well, just no cons for me. Couldn't think of any. Didn't want to put it in. Just, I didn't want to force myself to think of a con. So, none for me. As long um, as you didn't put the con, it's no longer so I could watch it more or some bullshit like that. That's yeah, fine. exactly. Nah, <laughs> fuck that. So, all right, let's move along to Mulligan Moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Uh, I would reunite Stevie with her son Andy much earlier and uh, just not have her stay at the lighthouse with uh, some half-assed excuse that she needs to alert everybody, which is bullshit. Um, but, hey, you do you. I, no, I, I would change that. Though. That's the one thing I would change about this is that, that shit. Yeah, so my mulligan moment is pretty clear. The whole Jamie Lee Curtis in the morgue scene, so stupid. Like, she's just standing there staring at a fucking wall. Like, what is she even doing in that scene? I don't know, it just makes her character look stupid. It's pointless because the corpse gets up. It's a little scary at first, and then just fucking nothing happens, and it goes nowhere, and it ends like a wet fart. So it's just, I don't know, just cut that shit. Or rework you know if you really want to rework it have something meaningful come out of that shit but to me the easier thing is just cut that you don't need it i know uh you know you covered why they added it or why carpenter added it but nah just get rid of that shit just makes jamie lee curtis look stupid and it just doesn't add anything really all right well finger licking good finger licking good yeah for me it's the whole babysitter scene. I know it's like a short spot, but to that's that was the most menacing when I was a kid when I first saw this. You know, I was her, uh, Adrian Barbo's son's age, you know, and then just seeing like he's home with the babysitter and then the fog rolls up and then the babysitter gets yanked out the fucking front door. That scared the shit out of me and that always stuck with me. And it's just a very intimidating, scary, spooky scene, like seeing the fog all over the doors and everything and then the fucking Atkins, Atkins man himself comes to the rescue so yeah love that scene hell yeah uh, for me it's the final 20 minutes I couldn't pinpoint an exact moment that's my favorite but the whole final like the third act and shit is just excellent um, yeah. and, and just done so well it's perfectly executed um, there's even you know the um, just lost my train of thought mid-sentence. Anyway, wasn't important. Um, th- yeah, th- that's right. Twenty minutes. It's just just so much happened in the last twenty minutes. It's just my favorite overall part of the movie. Instead of just pinpointing yeah. little things here and there, I might as well just say, "Fuck it." The whole thing is a blast, uh, and my favorite. That being said, so yeah, yeah, finger looking good. Uh, final twenty minutes for me. So yeah, it's nonstop. It is. Yep. All right, let's give out our movie MVPs. All right, now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. The most valuable player is... Yeah, sure. So as much as I'd want to give it to Atkins, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I don't think this is his best work. Night of the Creeps, much better. You know, he thrilled me in that one. Yes. Uh, you know, Halloween three, I would take that over this. 
He's great in this, don't get me wrong. But I have to give it to Adrian Barbeau. I forgot how good she was. Man, she knocked it out of the park for her first movie. She's awesome. Awesome. She is so cool. You know, and I like her character overall because she's a mom, you know, just trying to make it with like this little radio station. But then she gets on the air and she's got that sultry voice. I mean, it just sounds so awesome. You know, Adrian Barbeau uh, has done some voice work like she was. I know she was on Batman, the animated series. I know she was on a few other things and it makes sense. Her voice is fantastic in this and she really does a great job. I mean, I would say the only down part is, like you said, like as a parent, I'm like, there would be no way in hell she'd be staying at that lighthouse. But other than that, uh, you know, that's not her fault. That's the writing. But uh, right. she's great in this. You know, I she she plays the role very well. She's believable as a mom. She's believable as like the sexy DJ. And she's awesome. I think she takes the movie up another notch. My MVP is going to go to. Should I get my notes pulled up? Huh. Same. Adrian Barbo. She's just awesome in this movie, and you know, just um, a, a a breath of fresh air. Something I just love seeing her performance in this movie. Um. Yes, she makes a couple bonehead decisions, but still, and and all in all, in the end, um, yeah, she's just she's my MVP for this movie. She's so good. Um, she just takes control of the of the lead and and runs with it, and uh, yeah, she's very believable and everything. So, Adrian Barbo is my MVP for this. All right. Let's move on to the final part, category-ish. <laughs> final thoughts. I say we uh, tie a bow on it and put her to bed. Film effect ends. Um, Perfect five stars for me. I'm giving this five stars out of five. Uh, just I love so much about this movie, like I said before. Uh, it, it's just one of them films that just it, it leaves me with a smile on my face whenever I watch it. Um. And, and yeah, I know it's 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 a tacky horror film from 1980. You know how how much can it possibly touch me? Well, enough. I love it. It's one of my favorites for good reason. Um, yeah. How about you, Corey? What's your final rating? So mine's three and a half out of five. I've always been a big fan of this film. You know, I'm a big fan of Carpenter. I I've always appreciated. I mean, you know, he's making he makes a lot of movies for not much money. But he has a strong premise. He has the technical know-how. And obviously the he brings the music to the table in a lot of the movies as well. So, you know, I've always been a big fan of Carpenter. I think this is great work. Uh, I'm a huge fan of ghost stories. I like me a simple ghost story. You know, nothing spookier to me than, you know, around a campfire telling a story. And this movie opens with that, which I think is such a genius way to open a ghost movie like this and i i love the pirate aspect and the coastal town and the sea and the fog mm-hmm. you know the fog right anybody that has been around a decent amount of fog it is eerie because you can't see like what's in there and then i think it was just brilliant to have zombie pirates in there that are also lepers as it happens so you know i just think conceptually it's a strong movie atmospheric uh as hell 
The music's awesome. I mean, it just all comes together. Now, yeah, you could watch it and say, oh, yeah, it's just a cheesy 80s movie. Uh, but I think it's so much more than that. Uh, you can watch uh, a lot of other movies and call it right. just a, another run-of-the-mill cheesy 80s movie. This, to me, isn't it. Uh, this, this to me, holds up, even watching it today. And it's enjoyable. And, you know, I'm, I'll fight anybody that says this movie isn't good. I know it got more of a mixed... <laughs> uh, mixed opinion but yeah i've always enjoyed this movie and i think it's awesome work by john carpenter agreed agreed all right well this episode has been sponsored by long john silver they speak fish like captain blake himself and that will bring things home for this this another show. One down, many more to follow. You can check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at thefilmeffectpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Please follow us on our favorite... I'm sorry. Please follow us on our social media for all future announcements and up-to-minute updates and news. We're on Facebook and Instagram, of course, at The Film Effect Podcast. We're on Twitter at Film Effect Pod, a.k.a. the best way to socialize with us. TikTok, sure. TikTok, we're on there at Film Effect Podcast. And then you can send along any emails, including some suggestions, re- reflections, questions, whatever. The Film Effect Podcast at gmail.com is the email uh, we would love to hear from each and every one of you guys. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, like I said before, scroll down to the bottom of that podcast episodes list and leave an honest rating review or both. If you're listening on Spotify, then you can now leave us a rating on the app by going to our main page, pushing that three-dot icon and selecting rate show. And finally, if you're listening on any other platform that it's not the two I mentioned, then you can simply go to thefilmeffectpodcast.com slash reviews and leave us an honest rating and review directly there. We want to hear from everyone, no matter what platform it is. Everyone now has options. All right, Corey, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, brother. Thank you, thank you for doing this, as always. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, of course. And uh, I mentioned it, I think, on Furecast last week. Uh, which is our other show, you know, listen to that. The whole gang's always on there. But, uh, you know, just thank you so much for everybody who's listening. You know, we've seen a recent uptick in the numbers, uh, as Ed's been telling me. So I just want to say I really appreciate anybody who's taking their time out to listen to it. It just blows my mind, you know, when I hear some of the numbers. I'm not saying we're like this huge podcast, but, you know, I, it just, I can't believe that even that many people want to listen to me talk about or us talk about movies. So yeah, just thank you so much. And I really appreciate everybody that takes time to listen to us. Yeah, definitely. And also I wanted to add that out real quick. Everyone who has taken the time to listen to our nothing but trouble episode from last week. Thank you so much. We have never seen an episode do the numbers, first week numbers, the way Nothing But Trouble did. And who would have thought, of all the films that we've covered over the last year to year and a half on this show, Nothing But Trouble would be the one to just accelerate and just take off as soon as I hit that that, that uh, post button on uh, the podcast thing. But it's just it's just crazy. And uh, yeah, like Corey said, thank you. It means the world to us. So uh you guys keep listening. We'll keep recording. So, uh, speaking of recording, 
Next week, we'll be back to uphold the law and discuss RoboCop from director Paul from director Paul Verhoeven. Uh, real no, quick, excited. Corey, what can listeners expect to hear on our podcast uh, on RoboCop next week? I mean, they're going to hear a lot of stuff. So, full disclosure, RoboCop is in my top five favorite movies of all time. I don't know. It's I don't know if it's my top one, but it's definitely in my top five. Just as far right. as movies I love, have rewatched. I mean, Christ, I remember us playing RoboCop when we were kids. You know, I guess that tells yeah. you how much it was marketed towards kids an R-rated, ultra-violent, eighty sci-fi action movie. But uh, you know. You're just going to hear a lot of stuff like from the love and the special effects here and how Peter Weller had to literally just spend an entire day getting put in that RoboCop suit and how they had to start filming things around the suit because they didn't have it done yet. So they had to start filming all the other stuff. You're going to hear a lot of good stuff. I don't, this is one of those episodes. I don't even have to research. I already know exactly what I want to talk about. And I know Ed feels the same way. So I think it's going to be a fun episode for sure. Yeah, can't wait for that. I really, really can't. There's, uh, whew, I don't know, Ed 209. <laughs> Can Robo- you fly, Robocop. Bobby? There's Robocop toys from back in the day with the snapbacks on all of them. Whew. Well then, ladies and gentlemen, it's been fun, but now it's done. Say goodbye, Corey. Bye, everybody. All right, take care now. Bye-bye. And until next week, we'll see you for RoboCop. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This concludes our broadcast day.